Okay, let's pray one more time together before we begin. <clears throat> Father, we simply come before you today acknowledging that your word is true and your ways are right and what your word tells us about what the local church ought to be like is holy and righteous and wise, Lord, and forbid that we would ever come up with our own clever way of thinking what a good church is. Lord, we pray that we would always take our standard from your word, that we would always see that your word is our guide, and that apart from it, Lord, we are lost. And Father, we know that in the church we gather together in your name, and this is the, this is the body that you have built. This is the body for which Christ died, Lord. And as we gather together, Lord, we are truly in a solemn and sacred assembly. And so, Lord, we pray you be glorified. I pray you help me. Lord, give me a mouth to speak your word in truth. I pray that you would lead us into uh, all truth as we study your word. And, Father, I pray that you would encourage your people, as I know that every one of us comes in here with a different load and with a different heart and with different burdens, all of which you are well acquainted with, all of which have been placed into our lives by the by the predeterminate counsel of a sovereign and good God. And so, Father, we bow beneath your sovereign hand today. Thank you. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are uh, looking at the last section here of 2 Corinthians 12, and we come upon a passage of Scripture where we are given a picture of Paul's desire for the church. Really, what it is, is the purity of the local church. Uh, you know, in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem uh, has a, a chapter in there where he deals with what is a true church and the doctrine of the church in general. And he has a whole section devoted to the fact that on God's scale, if you would, in a biblical scale, there are less pure and more pure churches. And certainly... In Paul's time, there was just that. There were less pure and more pure churches. There were those churches that really excelled in obedience and biblical faithfulness and excelled in good works and excelled in the furtherance of the gospel and in holiness and in evangelism. Of course, no perfect churches. And so no church in the New Testament, just like no church in our day, is perfect. It doesn't matter what denomination, it does not matter what theological persuasion, sin is pervasive everywhere. And it doesn't matter if you're Arminian, Calvinist, confused, <laughs> it just means that um, we are all battling the same battle in the flesh and striving against uh, the biggest enemies that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we will, no matter how pure our doctrine, no matter how solemn our assembly, no matter how reverent our fellowship, we will never be what God intends us ultimately to be until we arrive into that glorious state of the church triumphant, where we will be in a state of glory, but that is not now. Now is the, is the time for the church to be in a militant state. We are in a state of war. We, in a, we are in a state of crisis. 
Paul lived his whole life in crisis. Everything was urgent to Paul. That's why you can't preach lackadaisically. That's why you can't preach with apathy in your heart. That's why you can't take sin lightly, or that's why you can't preach the Word of God in a light, fluffy sort of diet way. There are no, there are no, there are no attitudes like that coming to us from the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or any of the Apostles or any of the early church that truly understood what it meant to be in the church, what it meant to be a Christian in the last days, in this age. And for Paul, he understood that the Corinthians were in a serious, serious battle for their life. This is Corinth, the church of Corinth, fighting for their life. They're battling for their evangelical soul in this, in this book. We know that because earlier the apostle makes this statement quite unequivocally that what he's striving for is that they be not deceived away from devotion to Christ. That's chapter 11, verse 3. And that devotion to Christ is that idea of commitment to Christ, that resolute allegiance to Christ. That's what's at stake. It's not just you're going to have a big church or a little church. You're going to have contemporary music in your church or you're going to have hymns. And, uh, you know, you're going to have blue carpet or red carpet. You're going to have pews or you're going to have chairs. He's preaching about whether or not they're going to have a faith when it's all said and done. And that's why Paul's words here are detrimental and they are absolutely essential for us to grasp. I think what Paul gives us in this passage particularly is things, universal things that would be setbacks for any church. So let me give you three. Three universal setbacks to any church to the church's purity, to the church's um, survival. Number one, he gives us this in verse 19, which I've entitled the absence of genuine edification. He says, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your up." Building, beloved. All for, see, what has gone on in Corinth is a gross misunderstanding of the Apostle Paul's ministry. His style, his manner, his demeanor, his words, his commitments. Matter of fact, remember the whole book opens up by them challenging, is Paul a man of his word? Because he says he was coming and now he says he has to go down to Macedonia and maybe make his roundabout to us again. And then we don't even know if that's trustworthy. That's why Paul says, look, I wasn't vacillating when I spoke to you and when I wrote to you. He wasn't going, you know, between commitments. He wasn't speaking out of the side of his neck. But he says it was because of a very severe ordeal, a trial that came into his life, that he was hindered in coming to them. But all throughout the letter, time and time again, I feel like a broken record up here. You probably feel like I do too. But that Paul has been misunderstood. And he's had to qualify and die the death of a, of a thousand different qualifications, at least it seems. And that's why I focus on that word, you think. All this time, you have been thinking that we were defending ourselves. So this is all about perception. 
They have been perceiving the wrong thing. They've been assuming the wrong things about the Apostle Paul. And so what is needed is what the Apostle Paul is striving for. Number one, to have a proper view of the purity of the church. Number two, to have a proper view of the authority of the church. Those are just kind of general headings about which he talks about here. Having a proper view of the purity of the church. All the things that he's going through. He's not doing this to harm them. The words, the letters of rebuke, as some have entitled, the sorrowful letter that he wrote to them, rebuking them for their sin. He does all of this for their good, for the purity of the local church. Because you see, for the Apostle Paul, church exists so that it might magnify the grace of God. Church exists to be a picture of redemption. Church exists so that when we come in here, we sing our songs and we preach the word and we listen to expository preaching and we fellowship with one another. We are telling the story of something that has taken place. That we have been redeemed by Christ. That we are the bride of the bridegroom. And in order to be a faithful bride, well, then we should be unspotted, unblemished from the world. We, we ought to be devoted to the bride, to the groom, as the bride. And that's why Paul says, I am jealous over you. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. That jealousy is a jealousy that every one of us ought to own in our own membership. In the church. It's not just the pastor that ought to be zealous and jealous to protect the purity of the local church. As we go on, we will see that this goes all into the attitude that we each carry each and every day and when we deal with one another. So he's striving for the purity of the church. Even when he rebukes them, he has that in mind. That's what they fail to see. That sanctification is actually quite painful, is it not? Sanctification is not just a walk in the park. It's not a bed of roses. One day in your Christian life, if it hasn't hit you already, you're going to realize Christianity may not have been what you thought it was going to be. I've had people tell me that. I had no idea it was going to be this hard. I had no idea it was going to be this difficult to be a Christian. What part of Jesus' statement, if you'd be my disciple... You to take up your cross and follow me. What part of that don't we get? Jesus said, if you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life in this world for my sake, you will save it for eternal life. That is the great cost of discipleship. And that is why Paul, in all of his ministry, and all of his striving, does not hesitate to make their joy complete. By admonishing them, by rebuking them, correcting them. It's called formative discipline. It's discipline that we all need. Formative discipline just simply means that we are using the means of grace that God has given us to grow as Christians. Corrective discipline, well, that's a whole other thing. That also is in Corinth. That also is happening here in Corinth. That's when you have to bring in disciplinary action to correct some sort of behavior. 
But all of this also tied in then to the authority of the church. So they misunderstood the fact that he was striving for the purity of the church, and they misunderstood the fact of his authority, the point of his authority. Now let's look at this carefully. He says, all this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. Very important phrase for ministry. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. So two things going on there, right? Number one, this idea of being in the sight of God means that for Paul, his ministry was primarily done in accountability to God. In the sight of God means in God's presence, in God's sight. It means basically that you are aware of God's assessment to you and that you of you and that you are aware of his all-knowing, all-seeing presence with you at all times. That is Paul saying that is the mindset that we have when we speak. And then he says, we also speak in Christ. That's a big phrase because you know the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. You know that the phrase in Christ speaks to being a believer. Speaks of union with Christ. That you are connected to him like a vine and a branch. Union with Christ. He dwells within you. He inhabits you. You are his tabernacle, his dwelling. Paul says his temple. The kingdom of God is within because the king is within. It's very simple to understand. What is the kingdom of God all about? Very easy. Just look at the king. Want to know anything about the kingdom? Look at the king. Is the kingdom here? Yes, in a sense, spiritually, the king is here, isn't he? Is the kingdom coming? Of course, the king is coming. Is the kingdom within? Of course the king is within. Okay, that hermeneutic, that was for free. <laughs> but you understand this phrase, in Christ can have more than just a salvific meaning. I think here it means something more like in Christ in the sense of speaking in the sphere or even by the authority that Christ gives them. Remember in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he already said he was an ambassador of Christ. He saw himself as a spokesman of Jesus Christ, standing in his place, speaking in his stead, a representative of Christ, the King. That's what he is. And he never, he never lost the wonder of that. He never lost sight of how glorious and how magnificent and how sobering and how cataclysmic it is to be an ambassador of Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, of the gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he gave me or which was given to me according to the, to the working of his power. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He was commissioned by Christ, he was chosen by Christ, he was sent by Christ, he was authorized by Christ, he was Christ's missionary, his apostle, his spokesman, his ambassador. That's the way that he did it. Churches today 
all over are filled with people that don't believe this about themselves. Oh, not that you're an apostle, but that you are speaking in Christ. That you are speaking on the basis of the authority that God has given you in his word to preach his word. And also, many don't preach, sadly, with sobriety because they don't believe the, the earlier part of this phrase, which is that they speak in the sight of God. And so instead, what you have today in many, 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 many churches is shenanigans. You have preachers that are, you know, that are swinging from the rafters and driving Harleys up on stage and doing, you know, a series of 40 days on, you know, sexual intimacy and bringing beds on the stage and the stupidity and the irreverence of those types of ministries are rooted theologically in the reality that they don't think they're speaking in the sight of God. They think they're speaking in the sight of men only. They really don't think God takes into account what type of worship you offer him. And so strange fire is offered up to God in the name of God and God respects, receives none of it. Like he told the children of Israel in Amos, I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your Sabbaths and your feasts and your festivals and your new moons. You, you weary me with your prayers. God can say that. If we don't worship him the way he wants to be worshipped, God can say that to us. Don't be offering up hypocritical worship to God. Don't be offering up, you know, chaff from the, from the pulpit. It will burn up, especially on the day of judgment, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Your works, and there, amazingly, ironically, he's talking about the gospel, the preaching ministry. How that the preacher, if he doesn't labor and work and build with good building materials, guess what? On the day of judgment, all that preaching and all that teaching and all that ministry that you were involved in, woo! It will just incinerate on the day of judgment because you wanted to play the cool guy. Because more than anything, you wanted to be funny up there. More than anything, you wanted people to like you. You wanted to win a popularity contest. You wanted to get in the cover of a magazine. You wanted to sell a million books because of anything, you wanted the masses to just fall in love with you. And then you reach that moment in time before the Bema Seat of Christ where you realize all of a sudden there was really only one person that you should have been pleasing. And if you're not pleasing him, it doesn't matter who you're pleasing. But there's something more serious about not harnessing this reverence in the sight of God is that when preachers don't preach with conviction, then moral conviction gives way to moral maxims. Uh, this is important because all of a sudden you're preaching about morality without Christianity. You're giving moral advice, but you are not presenting Christ as king. You're giving moral maxims, moral advice. You're giving moral proverbs, but you are not telling them why. See, it has everything to do with the soul of the preacher, this phrase right here, preaching in the sight of God has everything to do with the soul of the preacher. And Paul wants to 
with, without any equivocal, on any equivocal terms, he wants to make it you know, apparent that his motive is not self-defense. It's not like he's trying to defend himself so that people won't come after him. No, far more than that. Number one, he fears God. Number two, he has the authority of Christ with him. And what is the purpose of all of it? The purpose is to build them up. He says, all this time, you have been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. That's beautiful. So now we get to the goal of the preacher's ministry, of gospel ministry. What is the goal that Paul had for this church? It was to edify the church. But you see, in order for the church to be genuinely edified, it had to be edified in truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it hurts to be confronted with the truth. Sometimes it hurts when people are trying to constantly remind you of, of being holy and, and, and sanctification and your, your obligations to the church and, 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 and exhorting you to be generous and exhorting you to serve and love one another. All of those things at times, if we're honest with ourselves, it, it intrudes into our personal space. We don't want people convicting us. We don't want people challenging us. Because somewhere, somehow, we develop this idea that we got it all together. And we don't need anybody to challenge our faith anymore. That we've arrived. Well, not only did the Corinthians not arrive, I mean, far be it from that, they had descended into a very dangerous place, both morally and theologically. Therefore, the Apostle Paul has to remind them of his authority. But what I love about Paul's authority you know, the word, uh, uh, the word that he uses here, authority, okay? It's only brought up a couple times in chapter 10, verse 8. In chapter 13, verse 10, it's brought up this idea of authority, the authority that he bears as being an ambassador of Christ. And in both contexts, in both contexts, the authority that he has is for the purpose of edification. It's not for the purpose of mind control. It's not to throw a trip on somebody. It's not to be legalistic. It is not to control people. It's not to be domineering or lording over. But it is, as he said earlier in the book, chapter 1, verse 24, it is in order to work together with the church, with the members, for their joy. That's what it ought to produce. Joy. Let me just read to you a couple of those verses. Chapter 10, verse 8. He says, even if I boast somewhat further about my authority which the Lord gave me. He says, for building you up and not destroying you. That's what the authority is for. And what do you see with cult personalities? What do you see with cults in general? You see people claiming authority for the purpose of destroying the sheep, exploiting the sheep, fleecing the flock. But Paul is saying, None of those things. It's for the upbuilding, the strengthening of the church. He says in chapter 13, he says that when I come again, he says that I may not use severity according to the authority which the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. You should be able to come to church and be encouraged. You should be strengthened by what you hear from the preaching ministry, the teaching ministry, the shepherding ministry of the church. 
It shouldn't be beating you down and bogging you down. Look, you've got enough problems. You don't need some pastor to then throw his own, his own personality quirks on you, to, you know, to make you jump on his you know, hobby horse, his theological hobby horse. You, know? he, he, you don't come to the church to get more problems. Hopefully you come to the church to be edified in the midst of your problems, to be encouraged, all for the building up of the church. There's another thing, another hindrance. Look at verse 20. Not just the absence of edification, that will surely be a setback to any church. But now let's talk about the presence of ungodly attitudes. Verse 20. He says, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not, may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. You see, these things were present. Paul's hope is that they would rectify these things. But Paul is saying, look, I am afraid perhaps these things will persist in the church if you don't take care of them. If they go unchecked, if sin is allowed to just persist Listen, it will be like gangrene. It will just continue to grow more and more. Really amazing vice list that he gives here in this place. But notice, he is afraid. He says, I am afraid. See, there's a pastoral fear, a, a healthy pastoral fear, I might add, of the fact that the flesh in the congregation may get out of control. You see that same fear. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 because here we have a very close parallel and we need to look at these things side by side. Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul talks about the fact that, look, if the flesh goes unchecked, it can get to the place where it becomes uncontrollable. It becomes so incredibly destructive. It says, but if you... This is Galatians 5.15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take care, this is a solemn warning, that you are not consumed by one another. I forgot which Puritan said that, you know, division in the church creates atheism in the world. And that's true. That doesn't make it right. But when people look in to a church or to a church situation, and find nothing but division and bickering and fighting and devouring and slander and gossip, it doesn't adorn the gospel. If anything, it makes the gospel look unattractive. Why would I want to get involved in your little sewing circle? You guys are so after each other. So there is great... This is why I say this church is fighting for its survival. And it brings up the whole issue of the flesh... And the spirit, that's why I had you turn here to Galatians chapter 5. And rightly understanding what is the flesh, what is the spirit, how do they relate, how do you not walk in the flesh and walk in the spirit? Because those two things will make it or break it for a church, for your Christian life, all of that. And so he, he admonishes them with the one another's of scripture. You hear me use that phrase from time to time. The one another's of the Bible. Love one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. Rebuke one another. Admonish one another. Love one another, etc. But here he uses the one another passage. It's a strict warning. 
to warn them. It's almost as if he has to, you know, before he gets to the blessings of the covenant, he has to give them the curses of the covenant in Galatians and in these types of vice lists. Think about the, the warning that comes here. He says he warns them against strife. And what's interesting here is we could almost say strife and disturbances, that which goes at the very beginning of the list and at the very end, strife and disturbances, almost as if these describe the overall temperature, the overall conditional, the overall you know, uh, temperament of the church. And then all these other ones describe the explosive attitudes and dispositions of the heart that make it happen. Where does strife comes, come from? Where does a church that is filled with strife come from? Well, I'll tell you what it comes from. It comes from jealousy. It comes from anger. It comes from disputing with one another. It comes with slandering your brethren. It comes with gossip. Don't listen to gossip. Don't hear gossip. If someone starts gossiping to you, have a deaf ear. Bring in a rebuke. If you want to gossip about one another, here, let me me use another one another against you. I'm going to rebuke one another right now. Now, we don't need to gossip uh, about each other or slander one another or be arrogant, prideful, arrogant, so destructive. And so it is with these vice lists. This is the, the manifestation of the flesh. You remember the flesh. The flesh is that component of who you are that is yet unredeemed. That impulse to do evil, that inclination to sin, one day that inclination will be wiped away. I love that song, that hymn that says that we look forward to the day where we will love God with unsinning heart. Because as glorious as worship may be here, you can be worshiping praising God and have a sinful thought pop into your mind. I can't wait for the day when you are worshiping God with the impossibility to sin. That's just, I can't even, that's heaven right there. But we are also commanded, according to Paul here, to walk in the Spirit because there's a glorious promise. How do you overcome evil? With good, Paul said. How do you overcome the flesh? With the Spirit. Funny, we were talking about this this week, but what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? How do you do that? Do you wait around for it? Are you waiting for some emotion or some experience or some feeling to creep up your leg or something? No. It is a choice. It is, a, it is an attitude. It is a disposition of the heart. It is when you decide to walk according to the Spirit's resources. That's when you're filled with the Spirit. I mean, think of the contradiction. Can you be filled with the Spirit and then your life not look like this? Consequently, if your life looks like this, where you're walking according to Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about here the Spirit, verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you're walking in that, I don't think you need to sit in a corner and wonder, am I in the Spirit yet? I think that is the Spirit. (laughs) It's not some mystical, esoteric thing you're waiting for. It's a mindset. It's, It's choosing. It's a choice. Put on the mind of Christ. 
That's what it is. That's why it's an imperative. It's an imperative. And God would not have us to be in confusion. As if we have to sit around and go, wow, am I in the spirit right now or not? I can't tell. Yes, you can. Just look at your fruit. And you'll know right away if you're walking by the spirit or not. Not only, therefore, are these negative uh, attitudes in the church, and boy, we can go on and on with the viceless here, but then there's even something worse. It's almost like things go from bad to worse in this passage. Sorry. There's also a tolerance of impenitent sin. Look at 21. It says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. Very interesting. And that I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. So what is Paul afraid of here? Paul is afraid that once again, look, look at the language he's here. My God may humiliate me before you. He's almost afraid that God might ordain this for him. But notice also, that within knowing that, look, God is sovereign over everything. At the same time, he admonishes them in, as far as their behavior goes. To take ownership and full responsibility for their actions. So he's saying, look, rather than arrive at Corinth the third time and then have this unpleasant surprise where I find you and you're not what I wanted to see. And now you have to deal with me in a way you didn't want to see which is with discipline and authority and severity, he says, instead of that, that is the way, in other words, that God will humiliate him again. And then, look at the result. I would mourn over many of those that had sinned in the past. What a, see, this is Paul's pastoral passion here, his, his concern. This is his fatherly heart for the church. And John MacArthur captured it very well when he talks about Paul's pastoral concern. He says, Unrepentant sin in his congregation is heartbreaking, distressing, and discouraging for any pastor. It crushes him, zaps his strength, and may, if unchecked, drive him out of, the, out of his church, if not out of the ministry. If sin is allowed, therefore, to persist, it will spread like gangrene. It will ruin everything. It will destroy the church from within. It will crumble. If sin is just allowed to go on. Now, if you know the theology of the Corinthian letters, you know 1 Corinthians, right? There's only 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you know that we have a problem with sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. Big time. Corinth, as a region, as a, as a Roman providence, is actually, was actually known as being a very vile place. It was a porting city where there was a lot of prostitution. There was all sorts of uh, temple uh, uh, goddesses that were worshipped, goddess of, of fertility and things like that, Artemis, just different, different types of deities that, that uh, uh, practiced or did their rituals through immorality. And that's why Paul admonishes the church there to root out sin, to get rid of it, impenitent sin. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because there is sort of the hallmark chapter of all of this. It continues on in chapter 6 as well, but here we know, as Paul says, that there was immorality in their midst. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. 
an immorality such of such a kind as does not even uh, it does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife, maybe his stepmother. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So in other words, the problem was not that sin happened, that's bad enough, but that sin was allowed to go on and on impenitently. They knew it was happening, and they were unwilling to do anything about it. Why does this matter? Why are you so passionate about this? Maybe I'm just passionate all the time when I preach, but I'm passionate about this because, this is why, because we have an epidemic today in the church, okay? Maybe not in the more solid churches that you may think of in your mind, but by and large, evangelicalism lays in a wasteland of disobedience on this issue right here. The unwillingness to deal with sin. Maybe I can go even further. The unwillingness to deal with sin in God's way. I've had pastors tell me, why would you ever excommunicate anybody? Don't you want to grow your church? To which I would respond in one of my more unkind days, you don't have a church. You have a club, it might be religious, you get together in Jesus' name. I think the reformers were onto something when they, when they said, unless you're unwilling to practice church discipline, you don't have a biblical church. It was Jesus, after all, who said, if a brother sins against you, go to him. If he does not repent, take another one with you. If he still doesn't repent, tell it to the church. If he won't listen to the church, then treat him as an unbeliever. Wow. You see, some pastors, in the attempt to be more compassionate than God, actually end up being disobedient to God. Don't try to be more loving than God is, okay? Or oh, we'll just love him back into the family. No, this is love. You're, you're cheating on your spouse, and you think you can just go on and on in that. Nobody to confront you. Pastors won't step in. The church won't do anything. In some churches, that goes on. I can't, I can't even, I, you know, my, it boggles my mind some of the things that I've heard, even in membership meetings of people that come from churches where, oh yeah, uh, you know, I came to this church where, you know, everybody knows the pastor's sleeping with people. There's immorality up on the worship team, you know, so-and-so, they, you know, they, they've been immoral and they just, they, they live together and they just kind of, it's up there. Folks, let me just tell you, that's not a church. Antinomianism is not the gospel. Being lawless is not consistent with the biblical gospel. They might have the gospel message, but they don't have it in practice. And therefore, God is displeased with that whole type of worship. And that's why Paul is so passionate, once again, to tell them not just to confront the sin, but if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he wants them to root it out. Your boasting, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, what he's saying is, don't you understand this, the spiritual dynamics of sin? See, this is a theological problem. Everything goes back to theology. What you think in your mind. This is why our church is so big on on teaching, exegetically, expository, 
teaching in Sunday school. That's why we don't get together and Sunday school is not just a time to draw or do art or, you know, watch films or, you know, things like that. No, we, we want to renew our thinking, renew our mind, because if we, we know, if we know our sinful hearts, we know that if we have faulty theology, it will lead us to faulty living. This is not, my friends, an issue where a sin took place. This is, this is persistence. This is out in the open. They're allowing this to, t- to take place in the church, and they're doing nothing about it. That's why the Corinthians, for the Corinthians, their immorality, their impurity, their sensuality, all of that went back to a theological problem that their theological ignorance gave way to their immorality. They failed, for example, let me just give you a little theology of sin, okay? Based in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for starters, they failed to see the hazards of sin against the physical body. Especially we're talking here sexual sin, because that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. Immorality, uh, impurity, immorality, sensuality, all have to do with sexual sin. And the very first thing that they failed to see is is that that type of sin has dire effects on the human body. The mind, the heart, the body. Uh, not just venereal diseases, okay? Where I heard just this staggering statistic about our society here lately that something like one in four women uh, between the ages of 14 and 20, I believe it was, one in four have some sort of STD. I mean, we live in an immoral, completely debauched society. They failed also to see the fact that their bodies were the dwelling place of God. It says in chapter 6, verse 19, that their physical body is the temple. The temple of God. God resides in you. There's a mystical union there between the believer and God. And Christ is in you. And that's why he goes on to say there in chapter 6, if Christ is in you, then if you go into a prostitute, you take Christ with you. That's incredible. And then they fail to see that the church also is the temple of God. That the church corporately, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, the church is described like a temple, a temple of God, where God's presence should be acknowledged. It should be adored. It should be feared. But instead, through this act of immorality and through this persistence of immorality in the church, where the church was refusing to deal with the issue, a known issue, it was on the precipice of total destruction. Total destruction. So one of the reasons why these passages are so relevant, therefore, for us is to know that there are many churches where church discipline just is not practice. It is a forgotten doctrine. It is completely vanished from the consciousness of many ministers. Oh, who could do that? I can't do that. I mean, I can't even preach on modesty for crying out loud. I'm so scared of the women in my church. What if I talk about cleavage? And I, I can't do that. That's just a coward, folks. That's all that that is. And, and God doesn't call the minister to be a coward. You know what Paul told Timothy? He told Timothy, Timothy, suffer with me in the gospel. <laughs> you want to be in ministry? Real ministry, you want to serve God, really serve God, 
Be prepared to suffer like a, like a soldier. I invite you to suffer. <laughs> what, what seminary starts with that? We'll give you your MDiv, we'll give you your master's degree, your PhD, your THM, boy, we'll make you a doctor of theology. But who says, come and suffer? You know, Calvin, John Calvin had a, a school of ministry once, a men's school. They call it the School of Christ, right? And these men that graduated from there uh, were almost guaranteed martyrdom upon graduating and going into and trying to minister to a church. Almost guaranteed to lose their head. We live in different times, but the sin is the same. And that's why for Paul, that's why for the Apostle Paul, the purity of the local church is uppermost in his heart. Every church that exists on this street, well, one's a cult, but then there's churches. Right? Oh, Mormons are cults, sorry. Every church, there will be a, there will be a great uh, reunion. Jonathan Edwards told his church when they kicked him out, he says, this is but a, this is but a temporary parting. We will meet again. The pastor will face his sheep again. Christ will hold him to give an account for all of those people that he shepherded. That's why I tell people, they come and say, oh, I'm thinking about going here and going there and making this decision and making that decision. My main priority is this. Look, I don't care if you stay. Well, I do care if you stay there. I hope you stay at this church. But if you go somewhere else, my main, my main thing for you is just be under sound preaching. Be in a good church. Be under a sound ministry with good pastors. That's the most important. I don't care, I don't care if you're making a million dollars or you're making no dollars. What I care about is your soul. And the quality of ministry that is influencing your mind and soul, that is of utmost importance, folks. And so I pray that we would be encouraged to take ownership, not just the pastors, but all of the members of this church, that we take ownership of the purity of our church. That we would care to be devoted to, the, to, the, to Christ, that our devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ would be uppermost in our hearts. That we would, just like Paul says here, that we would, as beloved, that we would recognize the, 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 the need for, for, for godly discipline, godly authority, and that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't uh, fight against the formative discipline of the Lord, the ordinary means of grace that he has ordained for our lives through church, through Bible preaching, reading, scripture reading, all through fellowship. This is the way that God is going to grow us. Are you waiting for something to happen in your life? Are you waiting for some spiritual event to go down so that you can really become a godly person? Then I'm telling you right now, you are deceived. Because God doesn't work like that. He doesn't put you on hold until something really happens or you become really godly. Sanctification is a transformative act that happens all the life long. And the more and more that you live the Christian life through the fights, the wars, the trenches, the difficulties, the trials, the more and more you will become like Christ. The road to Calvary was not easy for Jesus. And our sanctification will not be easy either. Let's pray. Well, Father, I've said about as much as I can. Um, 
And I ask simply that you would give us the mind of Christ, Lord, in regards to all these issues. We see Paul's heart. He cares for the, for the church, the purity of the church, the health of the church. For the Apostle Paul, it's just unthinkable that the church would just allow immorality to persist. And so I say the same thing for us, God, even in our personal lives, that we would never just allow immorality just to persist in our lives without doing something about it. And we thank you and we bless you, Lord, for those moments where you do put your thumb on us. And you do not let us get away with our sin, but that you deal with us, conforming us always into the image of your Son. Please encourage your people this week with the promise of sanctification. With the reality that in the normal, everyday affairs of life, you are at work. Help us not to doubt that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.